This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. This hobby of ours, this hobby of playing playing roles at tabletop, uh, is is inundated with stories of awful GMs and toxic groups and that guy players. And those stories get a lot of traction and a lot of engagement and a lot of shares because they're memorable and entertaining and it's fun to be angry. But I sometimes worry that sets an overly negative tone for the hobby. So today I thought we could talk about the inverse of that trope. This is a hobby we all do for fun, meaning ostensibly we mostly. enjoy it mostly yeah <laughs> ostensibly we enjoy it we get excited about it we like it we keep coming back to it so what are some of our stories of tabletop moments that make you think yes this is why i continue to seek out this hobby and get you excited about playing or jamming does it have to be delta green or should it be any game it does not have to be delta green yeah i think, I think it should be generalized I, I do want to speak generally really quick there's, there's other hobbies i've been into i, I did airsoft for a long time I was like super into that, um, and uh, a couple others, and it feels like a lot. Role playing is the one hobby that I can I can honestly say I've done since my cousin introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons in like third grade till now. Whereas like you know airsoft I did for like four or five years, and then the community got toxic, and I got really fed up with it and left, and like haven't ever gone back. Like I've never had that. I've had acute instances in like you know the role playing world where I'm like, all right, I need a break. You know this group sucks. I'm gonna go somewhere else, whatever. But it's rarely nothing has ever been like bad enough to turn me off the hobby. It's just so many positives to it. This is so. Uh, I was in the military. I was in the Coast Guard for many years, and um, obviously the you know military is full of people who are not into Dungeons and Dragons unless you're like in the IT world of the of the uh, Coast Guard. But I did real work. So for the most part, you know any it was unlikely to get like a Dungeons and Dragons game started underway on a cutter because everybody's busy you know doing stuff and you know working out and studying and stuff like that but there were there was a couple of people that like you know we had played it before and, and we kicked around the idea of starting a game but mostly it was just like a nerdy thing that like people would make fun of you for and then we you know uh i might have told the cocaine story but in in the in the in the, in the, in the getting cocaine off my face story i'll put that as a sidebar we had to ride prize crew on a ship we'd captured which is exactly what it sounds like uh we captured a ship full of all the rest of all the smugglers and we had to stay on the ship to make sure that it wasn't sinking and bring it back into the port where we were going to turn the smugglers over. So there were... There it's were... like the bit master and commander at the end where they capture the Acheron and send a bunch of the crew over to, to, yeah, to take yeah. it back, right? Yeah. yeah. And the prize crew is exactly... We've taken a prize. It's you know, it's the same it's the same word terminology from like, you know, the 1800s or whatever back in the day. Um, so there were four of us on there and it's pretty goddamn boring. Kevin, because... can, I, can I ask a question? Because I'm, I'm, I'm interested yeah. now. Um, when you, because one of the things that I always thought about, like the concept of prize crews is you might find yourself aboard a boat that you have very little idea how it works as a result of, you know, you're you're right you're you're riding some kind of like you know point class cruiser or whatever the hell the coast guard drives nowadays and you get on board you know this like drug smuggling vessel it could be anything and like there's um I'm, i mean i assume there's some kind of standardization but did they deliberately give you like some kind of really fucked up like memed out uh quote unquote like enemy vessel to drive around I mean, it was it was a fishing boat. That, so I mean, in those phases, boats for the most part, boats are boats. You know, forward, backward, steer, left, right. 
you know, as long as the engines run. I think you mean port starving. Yeah, right? Um, and most of the, you know, engines all work the same way. So it's not rocket surgery, obviously, if there's like, you know, um, I would, we've done it I on, would like, assume that the most difficult part would be that when you get on board a boat that is not yours, all the shit's going to be stored in different places. And that's going to yeah, be a pain. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you, so you, you do take some time to familiarize yourself with it. Uh, we've, when we did, we've done it on like... Like if, uh, say it's like a nice boat, say it's like not a snorkel boat, but it's like a yacht, it's like has criminal evidence on it or something. A lot of times, like we'll keep the crew there, we'll just keep, they'll drive, they'll work the boat, we'll just keep them under watch, keep them under guard, or make them tell us what's going on. But this, in this case, all the smugglers were back on, on, on our cutter and we were on, on the prize crew boat. And mainly we just, we had some pumps running because the bilges were garbage. So we just had to make sure the pumps had gas in them and they were still pumping the water out and, you know, keep a general course. Uh, their autopilot was basically just a, uh, a piece of rope that you'd latch over one of the, <laughs> one of the ship wheel spokes, and that was all it was. Um, so we checked the course every like ten minutes, you know. Unless we're following, the, we're following a big coaster cutter that you know you couldn't miss with it with a ten thousand foot pole if you wanted to. So we're all, you know, we're all we're all hanging out there, uh, and it's boring. So we, we put up hammocks because we didn't want to sit on the ground because there were rats. Um, so we put up hammocks and they're cockroaches and stuff. Put up hammocks and we're hanging out and. You know, we go. Through, we get kind of bored talking through whatever we're talking about. So I'm like, all right, guys, let's. I got a hypothetical for you. Let's say you're back home, wife and kids, whatever, right? And you look outside, and it's a zombie apocalypse. Like you see, like zombies running down the street, shuffling down the street. Like you kill your neighbor. Like what do you do, right? And so you know, they they all give me their answers, right? And I'm like, well, I mean, you guys all live kind of. We all live in the same. We're in Key West. We all live in the same area. And and I was like, you know, like, all right, so you you know, you make sure your house is safe. You get your kids, you lock you get lock them in the bunker in the basement, or whatever. But like, you know, the guy gets supplies. Like, where do you go? So there's only one grocery store. So I'm you know, like, all right, you know, they get to the grocery. They're like, all right, we can go to the grocery store. And then partway through it, I'm describing the guy. So you guys, say you guys all find each other there. Now you're like a team. One of the guys is like, "Yo, are you Dean Dean us right now?" <laughs> and he was like, first he was like pissed. <laughs> But I was like, yeah, but isn't this isn't this interesting? And they were like, yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was a complete like, uh, I mean, obviously no system. We just like, kind of like talked through it, you know, like what the plan would be. He just gamed it out and stuff. But it was just the way he was like through it, like, you know, uh, essentially like threw his hand of cards down and was like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm being bamboozled by Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> this this um, is something that I used to do with my cousins when we go to the family reunion is we would um, is this this was before I even knew like what like RPGs were but you'd do like you'd have one person telling the story and you'd have the other people saying what the characters do and I, I assume it's something that like a lot of people probably discover independently when they're just bullshitting kind of like that situation you were just in well and it's funny like you know I don't want without getting into the weeds of it but like collective storytelling is one of the oldest technologies man has ever had so it's deeply ingrained in our like like you know hind brain so you know it's like what separates us from apes and even then doesn't always separate us from apes so like all Dungeons and dragons is is just like the same stuff but you've added dice to it i mean let's be totally honest you're just collectively storytelling yeah. something yeah you're not keeping wrong. like a history alive so there's probably a reason why it's sticky so i when i uh, a while back i was interested in like there were all kinds of, like, proto-role-playing games before, you know, you got, like, Gygax and Arneson and all those guys. Like, even going as far back as, like, the 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 1870s, 1890s. And so I had, I had this, um, this vision of what would, um, what would RPGs be like if they were made by, like, uh, a theater troupe rather than war gamers? 
And so I decided that they'd probably base their game on, like, the classics, because that's what they would have studied. And so I came up with this whole, like, uh, alt-history RPG, um, kind of an alternate path the hobby could have taken, called Arete, which is based on, like... uh, Basically, again, like what I just said, you know, trying to imagine what people would have thought up if they had some basic idea of like, okay, here's how you introduce a randomization element for probability, but also like, what do what what would actors think of like think role playing was like, and um, spent you know like a week writing that up, um, scheduled a play test, didn't get any players, got sick of it and abandoned it, so maybe it's not really a good thing to introduce for our. Um, positive experiences with the RPGs topic, but apparently there were lots of games like that that were just circulated in magazines back in the old then days, and they were just they were called shit like parlor games. Yeah, I can see that. The way you were talking about it, I was like, well, I wonder if like obviously like you know the the proto like D and D is like it was created by world gamers and it's about like fighting monsters, and I was like, I wonder if a theater created D and D would be like less about that. But then I was like, so much of theater is like kings and wars and stuff that I think you'd still end up like fighting. Specifically in this one, uh, the assumption was that these were guys who wanted to like retell Sophocles and uh, Euripides stories and like the Iliad and the Odyssey and shit like that, which is very much, those are stories about killing people, literally about killing people and taking their stuff. Like that's one of the recurring elements in the Iliad, which is that every time you kill someone, you immediately grab his armor and his weapon. And about fighting monsters and about like exploring hexes and throwing NPCs in the way of yourself in danger. Because every time Odysseus encounters a monster or a wizard or anything, the first thing that happens is that like X number of his crew get eaten by it, and then he escapes. <laughs> You've ever seen that that comic where the guys like. Hey Odysseus, this is pretty nice, but like you know, what what is an Odyssey? And he's like, oh, it's a thing where only, it's a big adventure where only one guy comes back and they name it after him. And the crewman's like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, I mean, technically, technically, nobody came back. Boo! <laughs> I'm trying to tie in a ship of Theseus reference, but I got nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 podcast. If he, if we keep changing topics, it's still the same podcast. Um... <laughs> Who else has got a story? Sure. I'll tell a story about... This is not about um, so much great moments in uh, the playing of the game. Well, it is, but... um, So I like to write... uh, Sometimes I like to write rules for games because the existing ones in the genre do not make me happy and do not do the the things that I want to. I like to play... um, I don't like to play so much. I like the concept of um, OSR games and retro clones and all that stuff, but I find that the existing systems out there do not satisfy me because they have too much bullshit in them, like ability score modifiers and huge tables of saving throws and all of this shit that is just there because we've always done it and is not actually essential to what I find fun. So I wrote my own set of rules that I used for this for this genre of game. And when I was playtesting it, every time I would make a change, I would always be concerned that it would cause some kind of unbalance or that some certain thing was underpowered. But I remember uh, running a playtest of one of the adventures that I'd written called The Mansion of the Giant Armenius, which is about you're, you are um, adventurers going to steal treasure from a mansion owned by a giant that's under siege by a peasant rebellion. And you like wander around the giant, uh, the giant dining room, and you like steal furniture and shit. But it's all it's all like really huge, so you have to find a way to carry it out. But anyways, um, 
the players had like teamed up with the rebels to go and fight the owner of the mansion, the eponymous giant Arminius, and they had this huge, um, this huge like brawl in the master bedroom. It wasn't really the master bedroom; it was like the the it was his wife's bedroom, but his wife was dead because he had killed her in a, a fit of paranoia, and he was just sleeping there because it was the warmest room in his house, and he was diseased and and dying. And so he gets out of the bed and he starts fighting them, and they're fighting him and like one of his daughters and all of his human soldiers. And that was the moment where the players used all of like the different stuff that I hadn't gotten a chance to test yet. Like they were using all of like the fighter abilities and the cleric abilities and shit. And there was a moment where like every pretty much every single like thing on the character sheet got used and was useful and fun. So like the the you know the 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 caster guy opens up the the front by casting sleep and disabling a bunch of the soldiers and then the the fighter guy has like he like lost his arm in the previous adventure but he like buffed the shit out of his fighting ability and took all these special powers so he's like soloing the giant and he's using the defensive fighting ability which buffs his AC proportional to the number of fighter dice he has and so the giant's doing like all these elbow drops and shit and trying to kick him but he can't do it and then the moment where the giant actually does hits him another character's like I'm gonna spend one of my cleric dice to like buff my friend's AC so he doesn't get hit so he avoided just being splattered and then all of these things that I had been thinking up to this point, I've never seen anyone use this, I don't know if it's good or not, it might just be kind of shit, actually came together in a really satisfying, like, climactic encounter with this creature that validated a lot of the game design decisions. So one of the things that I really enjoy is seeing that the things that I've created are actually good and functional and produce the experience that I was thinking of when I wrote them. That's, that's neat, and it's also a lesson in, like, you can tweak balance as long as you want, but sometimes you just have to let people like play with it, and as long as you, as long as you know something isn't like, like as long as everything is within the error bar, so to speak, like your balance isn't going to matter if it's you know because the players are going to use characters and abilities totally differently across the board and stuff. So it's like I've seen I've seen game designers like chase balance too too far and it can make the game a lot worse. So so kudos. I really like that story. That's 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 a big climactic fight in which success hinges on everybody um, contributing and everybody using the, the the mechanical systems to interact in a particular way to achieve a particular end. That's that's really and, magic. And the thing that I liked about, the other thing I liked about the, the scenario itself is that afterwards people were like, hey, this felt like that other dungeon that you ran earlier in terms of, of um, like thematics and setting, but the gameplay actually worked. And I was like, yeah, because the whole reason I wrote this, I wrote this um, module was that I was trying to use elements from other like prepackaged adventures that I'd, I'd read and really liked, but the actual adventure themse- itself sucked because the designer did not think very carefully about how to uh, put all the elements in the in the the house so that they actually work together so the so when i'd run it the players are like oh hey i really like the part where we got to you know climb on the giant bed and hide from the the creature that was walking around at floor level or like push the push the golem into the giant uh reflecting ponds that it sank to the bottom and couldn't get us because it was too heavy and shit like that but then like the exploration element didn't work because that one that that the the module had just been like kind of a sequence of randomly assembled shit and so one of the fun things to do is take stuff that's not very well put together and reuse it in a way that is more fun and ensures that the players will actually encounter the things that you enjoy about it instead of just wandering aimlessly. Yeah, wandering aimlessly, nobody likes that. I mean, some people like that, I'm sure. I'll be honest, I enjoy a good hex crawl now and again. Hex crawls are great, but the thing about a hex crawl is that you should not make 
this is my opinion, you should not make the hex scroll like really, really big if you don't have stuff to put in all the hexes. Yeah. Like wandering endlessly is great if by wandering endlessly you can encounter stuff that's cool and interesting. Yeah. Or not even all the hexes, just enough of them that it's still interesting. Yeah. The uh, the most successful West Marches game I've ever ran was when we designed the hex. We had a house rule because we made a big map because we had a lot of players, and it was actually back back in the day. People who people who were born during the COVID times, you won't remember this, right? But like back in the day, you could like go to stores and play games. Um, so we I did it at the local game store. This. Yeah. So we had a lot of players. We had a big map on the wall and stuff. Um, but what we did is basically. The, the, the general rule of thumb is everybody wanted to put cool shit on the map, but we didn't want it to go crazy, but we also didn't want it to be empty. So basically from any from any point of interest, for any interesting thing, there should be clues to at least three other other things. So like maybe you're at like, uh you know, like this abnormally tall tree. And that's like a thing because underneath it is like a, a gnome dungeon or whatever. And so from from that tree, from that tree hex, you should be able to see like you know the the like ruins and then maybe like a you know uh like you know a, a sparkling like you know a giant waterfall that has like a rainbow color to it you know and like uh, a standing stone or something. I so think from I see everything, where you're going with this. Yeah. So, so you're not overwhelmed with stuff. There's empty hexes, but you're always like from any given point, you can always see two or three. Like you can always see the next towards. landmark from the current landmark. Yeah, that's a that's a good principle. That's the one where we wouldn't let players. The players kept the map on the at the at the shop up. So for a while, they actually lost one of their like they one team went into this dungeon, and they uh, a couple of people died, and the two of them escaped, and they wanted to go back, but nobody had paid attention to how they got there, um, and so. Like, and it wasn't like, you know, you walk two minutes this direction. Like, all we wanted to know is, you know, like, oh, you start at the town and you go west down the logging road and until, you, you know, until you reach, you know, the, fir- the first landmark, you know, the tall tree. And then you go, you know, north towards that waterfall. Before you hit the waterfall, there's a dungeon. So, so it took like, there was like two other, there were like two more adventures where players were just trying to find the old place again. And those adventures got, you know, side, like, you know, sidebarred into other shenanigans as, as things happen. But it was really, it was a great exercise in like, yeah, you should keep, you should keep a very basic note as like where you left your friend's body with the valuable thing. Um, I figured I'd go last because it's my segment. Tom, do you have one? I don't know if I have a specific narrative, but I like the, I really enjoyed the uh, sort of mini campaign for Viscid you ran for a couple of us. Yes. What uh, what about that spoke to you about the hobby? I thought that had a really g- a great sense of atmosphere at a couple of different points. I can think of like three moments in particular. Uh, the first one was early on. We were trying to track down some crows that had uh, ingested like some hazardous biological material. And every time we were talking about the, the goddamn crows, you would play a caw sound effect really loud. <laughs> And it was like, eventually it just got, eventually we realized you were doing it specifically when we were talking about it and it just got on our nerves so bad that we had to like, at that moment, we had to drop everything and go find this stupid bird finally. Uh, The second moment was we were trying to track down a monster created from this biological material and it had escaped from like a coroner's office and run off into the nearby woods. And my character was the one who had any kind of decent athletics. So I had to be the one to climb the tree. And when the thing jumped out of the branches at my face, I was like caught between trying to like defend myself or actually stay like clinging onto the branches and not fall. And I thought the build up to that moment was like really tense and really exciting. Uh, and the last 
specific moment that I'm thinking of in terms of atmosphere was uh, one of the players was using a character who had previously seen the yellow sign in a one shot. So he's playing the lookout for us while we break into this law office to get our hands on some paperwork. And he sees a figure just watching him at the end of the street. And he's trying to figure out, is this like a just a random passerby? Is this someone who's going to call the cops on us? So if I'm remembering correctly, he ends up just watching the guy back for a little while and then approaches him. And when he t- when he turns the guy around, it turns out it's just a mannequin holding out like an invitation. That's that's uh-huh. creepy. That's good. Because we've been uh-huh. we've been so sure like that we tripped an alarm or someone was going to notice the break in and call the cops on us. And it was a whole other kind of trouble. I remember that. I, I enjoyed running that a lot. <laughs> there were a lot of good moments in that. There are a couple I'm leaving out. But I feel like those are the those were the big highlights in terms of what I really enjoy. And that's that's the thing that speaks to you about the hobby is those moments of of uh, deep atmosphere, for lack of a, a deep atmosphere. That's what does that mean? Technically, Jesus it's like will. Gra- it's like ground level. Like we're all in. Yeah, deep I guess. Atmosphere. I guess so. Yeah, I guess. it's all around us. Yeah, two of them like really drawn out the tension and the dread of the moment and. With the birds, it's just like, well, my character is feeling exactly how I'm feeling right now, so well played. <laughs> this is why I appreciate having you in my games, Tom, because as, as a as a fellow uh, horror aficionado, I it's 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 nice to have somebody who really gets into that. I don't mean to disparage people who don't aren't appealed by the horror aspects of of, of Delta Green. I get that. That's fine. You know, find your fun, like we always say. But I uh, I, I very much appreciate having somebody who 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 leans into it when I bring out those elements. Yeah, thank you. That's the sort of stuff that got me interested in it in the first place. Well, naturally. Something that I really like is... <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah, see what I did there? Um, I hear no, could you, could you actually lay it out on a table first and explain it yeah, to us? Yeah. And then okay. execute that's good. it. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I am in this uh, this Dark Heresy game, some some friends of mine, and we have been given a a, 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 good, a a considerable degree of latitude. We've been presented with a thing to look at, to check out, to investigate, and then kind of just, all right, go off on your own and figure this out. Uh, so we kind of stumbled for a bit, trying to find our footing. And then as we are poking around the, the Hive Undercity and, you know, asking around about Hive gangs and weapons deals and drug smugglers and stuff, we start you know, piecing things together. And then the more little threads we tug at, uh, the more comes unraveling out and the more we start really getting into it and going, okay, well, well, these, these guys are amassing weapons over here. Well, what are the, what are they doing? Who's, what, what are what, they're, they're not selling them. They're just, they're just collecting them. Where, what are they, what are they planning? Well, where are they coming from? Well, and we just start like the, the, the storyteller is just, just sitting there, you know, just not saying a word. So we're just completely driving the session and planning like, okay, well, Eventually, what we decide is we're gonna we're gonna try and pass ourselves off as some new gang, and we're gonna we're gonna pull an Omar from the wire, and we're gonna we're gonna rob a drug dealer. Nice. <laughs> so. Well, you know what it sounds like. Um, do you remember the very first Eclipse Phase campaign that I ran, where 
Um, I didn't really have the whole thing figured out because the module I was running had no ending. And so yeah, that I, was red, red, I just red, kept, red, red, yeah, red, yeah, red, red, by Andrew Sandberg. And so I just step, kept stapling conspiracies onto the original plot. And so that one, at one point, the group just spend the entire, um, you, you like, you like took over the GM thing. Cause we were using the same room as for your other game. So you took over the thing and you made a new thing and you just spent the whole session draw, like corkboarding about who the mystery yes. was. And you figured, and I named the page, the method to Will's madness. You figure like 90% of it out and honestly like put together a couple of relationships that I didn't see but I figured were probably canon and made sense and like the game fell apart a few sessions after that because it was a text-based game and those we know how those end up but that was really cool I felt I, I was really really happy with that as the person who's running that game yeah that's that's sort of the, a similar kind of story as, as, as the one I'm painting here I, I really enjoy that putting together of the conspiracy and what's going on and coming up with a plan and then executing it more or less as intended more or less you know because no plan survives contact with the enemy um that was, that's a really good both of those are really good uh, really good moments and that's what really appeals to me about playing games in this hobby is is um finally getting to that point where you're able to really exercise agency onto the imagined world and figure something out and feel smart for having figured it out even if it wasn't that difficult to figure out and even if it was part of the jam's plan all along i feel smart for having figured that out one thing that is is good about that about like creating things in the imaginary world that is not necessarily super well supported by delta green because it's not that kind of game is having the ability to like create certain parts of the fictional world and have that be respected by the GM. The most you're going to get that in Delta Green is like your bonds, where you can say like, I, I have this character in my life who is, has these properties. But I'm thinking of stuff like uh, in uh, in the Rogue Trader game, like having like a couple or three NPCs that that uh, that we've just kind of created, like, oh, I'm going to take this this orc spore and raise him as my own. Or like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, marry this man of stone and then like tell her to make us a torpedo that can stellarize a planet and stuff like that where you can it's not it's not super common to be able to do stuff like that in a game like Delta Green which is more about micro level mystery solving and horror and so on but in games like uh like Road Trader they kind of paint a more expansive picture you can have setting elements that you make your own and do unexpected things with them which I really enjoy I described I had I, I had a similar um, thought actually, um, which was that that is also something that I enjoy about longer running campaigns where you can set up those things that then come back to come back around as a callback in, in the climactic final battle. I, I refer to that as as the the, um, the uh, what did I refer to that as? I made some kind of a reference to the suicide mission in Mass Effect too, which for 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 all anybody could say about the other the the, the Mass Effect games, that suicide mission was. Top tier. And it was top tier because everything you had done up until that point throughout the entire game came back in and fed back into that and affected the outcome. And that was cool. And I've seen that a couple of times. I've seen GMs pull that off a couple of times in RPGs, and every time it is satisfying as fuck. Yeah. So I, um, I've i been playing in Grandini's Esoteric Enterprises campaign where he's actually implemented a lot of the, the rules that I wrote for... Uh, like running a crime syndicate and having henchmen and stuff that I wrote but never really got to test in the full capacity that I imagined. And I've been very impressed with the way he's taken that, which is 
really a, a, a very primitive set of, of rules for essentially domain level play, like was found in the very early editions, where it's like, all right, you're level nine, so you get a castle now. I just made it really simple, like, okay, when you get to level three, you choose whether you want to be like a drug dealer or a fence or like run a run an occult crime of some kind or like run an illegal doctor clinic, and then you get you get a hench person or you get you get this many hit dice and you can just pick a character from the book to be, that has that many hit dice to be your henchman and you don't have to worry about like about like you know salary they just take uh, you know a cut of whatever experience you earn to to like you know just to to as as like this vague concession towards balance but the way he's do- he's taken that and made it such that uh, the players are much more integrated into the life of the underworld because now it's like, all right, you're trying to run your psilocybin farming operation, but the like the head mobster in this town has caused this has caused basically an, an occult tr- occult trade war with these other dungeon druids by embargoing them due to his fight with the Morlocks, and how that will then create reasons for the players to interact with people that they otherwise wouldn't. Because one of the problems that a game like Esoteric Enterprises has is that because the advancement system is based on getting money, it means that any interaction with NPCs that um, doesn't directly result in a payday kind of gets pushed off to the side by the players because they're not going about to risk their asses for something that doesn't materially benefit them. So That sounds familiar, doesn't it, Kevin? Right. I'm not for, I'm not sure what you guys are referencing here. <laughs> I was riffing on our Traveler game. Ah, no, yeah, like absolutely. That's one of the things that that uh, Traveler is cut from the same cloth as a lot of these old old timey RPGs, where the players are rewarded for like collecting things of economic value rather than for you know doing socially positive acts or killing monsters or whatever. So it's also a hex crawl, isn't it? Um. Traveler is for sure a hex crawl with a generated world, is my understanding. Kevin, you uh, you are very much in the position that I was in like a couple years ago, where I kept saying that I hated this genre while simultaneously enjoying everything about it and like playing games that were very similar to it. And I think that is kind of the the nucleus of our show is, God damn, I hate this thing. Let's spend the next three hours discussing it. And every time we discuss it, we discover more stuff that we like about it. Yay. Yeah, I mean, it's, nothing's perfect, and if we didn't spend... The fact that we spend our productive energy complaining about something and fixing it... Yeah. Is it, it isn't because we don't like it, it's because we do I'm like gonna it. I'm going to say this, yeah, and, and, and I I've I was kind of, like, burned out on Delta Green as a result of just running and playing a lot of it, and kind of running... Keep, keep, I kept running up against um, limitations, just in the sense that Delta Green is designed to be a certain kind of game, and I was trying to run things with it that were not really within the parameters of what it was made to do. But every time that we have these discussions on the show, I get excited about Delta Green again, because it's very easy to become cynical and and jaded and get sick of it. But then you have to think about, well, why did I enjoy it in the first place? And what can I do that I haven't done yet that'll bring that back? I want to go back to a few discussion points to something somebody said, and I honestly can't remember which one of you it was, but um, something about a plan coming together. I don't know. We should have written it down. That was me, yeah. I make no buts about Star Wars being my favorite role-playing game. Um, And you can tell when it's working. So uh, this is a a very quick primary. Sometimes you might roll dice, and there might be a negative effect. And generally, the the game master determines that, like, you know, Stormtrooper reinforcements show up or whatever. And, you know, the blast door is locked. The codes have changed or whatever. That's like a negative thing that happens as a result of your bad rolling. But you, when you know the game is working is when your players are so invested in the story that they throw out a negative before you have a chance to tell them what's happening. 
It's like they'll make a shitty piloting roll. They'll be like, God damn it, they when they did the maintenance, they they took our hyperdrive modulator, didn't they? And you're like, sounds about right. Sounds like they did, you know? <laughs> because like you know, players players who are focused on surviving and min- min- maxing their characters won't throw out bad suggestions. They'll always try to creep, like, oh, uh, a, a, a ship appears, but it's really far away. Like, is uh, that's, that's not a, not a consequence, right? But like players who invested in the story know what a good story is, especially know what a good Star Wars story is. And like, you know, oh crap, we've been double crossed, or like the ship is right here. Or it's a it's an interdictor. We can't jump or whatever. So when your players start making those like call, those callouts, you know they're like in, and that's a beautiful thing. I'm gonna say something that sounds negative about the 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 Star Wars FFG Star Wars, but I promise it's gonna come in come into something that I like about it. Um, I think that the game just has a has a bit too much like bloat to just really get at what you're talking about there with like that that um, thinking about what would be a cool thing to happen next because the with the character building rules and like the feats trees and the classes and stuff, there's just a bit too much emphasis on like mechanically dense character creation and gear to really get at what you're talking about. However, when you actually sit down and play it, one of the cool things that I remember about that game, and I think I've said this on the show before already, and uh, I'll say it again, though, one of the things that I liked about that game was that when, like, sitting down and planning stuff in, in a level of really intense detail was kind of a waste of time because something could just appear that would completely torpedo what you'd spent the last three hours working on. And that sucks if you really enjoy planning, but one of the cool things about it is that that game, unlike... It, 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 it had a similar feel to Shadowrun with, like, heists and shit, but unlike Shadowrun, which was... You know, in Shadowrun, there's, there can be, like, an element of very intense planning. This one felt like there was much more of an emphasis on being able to improvise when you were met with an unexpected situation and, like, rewarding creativity in the moment rather than meticulous scheming. I would definitely agree with that, yeah. And, Kevin, remember that the the episode that we spent the entire episode meticulous scheming was also the one that torpedoed the campaign. Yeah. Look, no, that was, to be fair, that's not just Jake's fault. Why? <laughs> Why is it Jake's fault? Because he... Man, I wish Jake would be here Look, to, to rebut yeah, exactly. that accusation. No, but I, I, don't, I genuinely don't know here. why you're saying this, Kevin. Tell like, me. Jake made him his character the linchpin of the plan and then couldn't make the next, like, seven sessions. And it was like, we're done. That, again, that's why, like, the yeah, game is about exactly. being able to improvise and not about planning. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I'll throw that out there, but it's what it is. I actually have another story about planning from the other side of the GM screen, where I am the guy sitting back, resting his, his head on his hands just with a big smile while everybody else plans. Uh, I'm running a road trader game for my IRL table group, which is now an online table group because it's the year 2021, which plays occasionally. Usually we do D&D or something, but every once in a while we'll do road trader. And... I have set up this situation in which, let me frame this. So the very first thing that has happened in this campaign is these, these, these rogue trader explorers have arrived at Port Wander, the gateway to the expanse. And the one, the one guy, um, my friend Teague, the salty space dog, he runs into an old acquaintance of his at a space bar who says, oh, you know, I just happened to have this data crystal, which has the coordinates of the lost crusade era treasure ship the righteous path and they go oh cool treasure ship we'll get rich let's go find it so they they start preparing for an expedition and then there's some debate over whether this stranger should be allowed on to, to quarter on the ship or he should just stay on the station and they decide let's just let's keep him keep him he has a berth in the station we'll leave him be for now he doesn't even want to come with us we'll send him back to centilia 
and then we'll go. So they, they plan. And then we come back next session. They're still planning. They're still planning. They're still collecting uh, like uh, equipment and provisions and they're, they're doing some bookkeeping. And, and as, as they're about to, to shove off, the um, Teague, Teague says, I'm going to go check on my friend at his, his birth on the station to see, see what's up with him. So he goes and checks on him. He finds he's not there. And in his place, there is a knife with a note, a knife stuck through a note from another a rival rogue trader that says, you have something of mine. Now I have something of yours. Let's trade. And so he brings the note back and they go, oh shit, this other rogue trader wants the data crystal because he wants to go find the ship and he's taken my friend hostage. So his position is, this is my friend, I got to save him. Um, my, my, my good friend, Amun, who is a, a, a cunning and um, meticulous and calculating player says i don't care about this person because he's not a friend of mine but i want to send a message that you do not take friends of ours hostage so <laughs> they eventually they eventually settle on maybe we'll take one of his guys hostages and they investigate that a little bit and find that's probably not a good idea because you know he's got a ship all of his own with all his own armsmen so then they figure okay 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 so here so we'll we'll agree to the hostage exchange we'll give we'll, but we'll we'll copy the data crystal first and get what's on it cuz we've broken the cipher we know the coordinates so the data crystal is useless to us so we'll just give it to him so then they arrange a meet in like the market district of Port Wander and they go okay wait no hold on hold on they think wait if we let him choose the location he's going to stack it with his troops and ambush us so we're going to send a messenger there we're going to wait for him we're going to send a messenger to tell him where the location is, and then we're going to stack it with our troops. <laughs> so anyway, they do that, and the meeting comes, and instead of the rogue trader, there comes his, like, one of his, um, his, his, his advisors who goes like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here representing the rogue trader. Give me the crystal. And then they do, like, this, like, the spy movie prisoner exchange where they're standing on opposite ends of a bridge, and then they both walk across at the same time. And it was really, really tense, and there were a couple of moments where I thought somebody was gonna, gonna get a little trigger happy and, and jump the gun and start a fight in the middle of the station. But it was really, really, really good, really tense. And they did the handoff, and they all both ran back to their ships and tried to race each other to the, sh to the, the treasure ship. So Pretty yeah, solid. and that sets up a nice, sets up a good race. And that was just one little thing that I did, and it just happened that Teague happened to think to check on the guy. And if he hadn't done that, none of that would have happened. I love the idea of them like taking the guy hostage, and then they wait for like three days, and they're like, did did anyone? <laughs> did we like call them? It's like, no, we left a note. You left a note. You left a note. What if they just? Oh, what shit. if they don't visit him? I always, I always love that that idea that like you try to blackmail someone, but they they like think that your phone calls are spam and they just don't pick up and it's like you know this this is what um uh there there's a there's a concept in catholic doctrine called unassailable ignorance which is like you know well okay well we want to we want to blackmail the guy but like we literally cannot tell him about the incriminating evidence and just re releasing it without telling him serves no purpose because we can't extort him so what what do you do for this that bit in the first season the better call Saul where he's trying to warn He's trying to warn them that like uh, Nacho's gonna steal their their money, or whatever. And he so he does like he's trying to disguise his voice. And he's like, "Just get get out of there!" And the other person's like, "What? I can't understand you." Yeah, so th there was a bit in um in uh Boardwalk Empire, which was not a great show, but it had its moments. And there's one where they they like kidnap the guy's brother, and so they 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 um they you know call him up and like, "We got your we got your brother." He's like, "What?" And they put they put the brother on the phone, and he starts you know it's like hey they you know they kid at me, and the other guy's hey, like hey, it's stop. me your brother yeah and the the other guy's like stop fucking around with whores and drinking and get back here will you and then <laughs> and then because they 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 just are sick of his shit and don't actually believe that he's kidnapped and then they just hang up 
Tom, one of the things that I always think of when I think of you is that you are much more um, accepting of like weird indie RPGs that do um, that do stuff like uh, like with with like Powered by the Apocalypse and Playbooks and Blades in the Dark and that stuff. Like with Spire. Um, I guess I'm just interested in the ones that have a very specific narrative kind of framing in mind, and I sort of lean towards lighter rule sets that just want to do a specific thing and leave the rest of it behind as there like are you thinking of spire specifically well i don't know because i felt like the the session that we ran with that we that we played in spire i would i would not put that on like a greatest of list because we found that the scenario while it sounded really cool on paper had some flaws like yeah. the fact that it was an, it was supposed to be an infinite library and there were only three rooms detailed in the module text well, technically, if it's infinite, you could you could describe anything, and it would be in the library. Yeah, you could describe the same three rooms over and over again. <laughs> um, but but Spyro was something that I liked the look of because, like you said, it had this really cool setting that um, I, I I guess I don't know how well I grasped it because I remember having lots of arguments with people during that game about what the best course of action was, depending on like whether elves were our enemies and we should kill them or not. Around elves, watch yourselves. Well, so Spire is like a world where like Droz and elf elves are like locked in a mortal conflict over who should rule the city because the elves are are um, like controlling all the money and the power and punishing the Drow for hundreds of years. Yes. So the the basic idea is that Spire is this mega city arcology that's unfathomably old. And the vast majority of the population are drow, but then 200 years ago, they were all conquered by the high elves, like just regular elves. And so now the the regular elves are running the show and they're like super oppressive towards the drow and trying to stamp out their culture and cement this power base. Won't let them eat spiders. Yeah. So I would say there's probably like, I would say that's left to individual attitudes where the player characters are part of this paramilitary cult i think is how they describe it where you're like you're all worshipers of a forbidden goddess and you can decide whether you're actually a zealot for that religion or whether it's just like a symbol of resistance but you're all trying to overthrow the high elves and get the drow in charge again yeah you you could be you could be like a a drow you could also be like a human mercenary or like a knoll i think which are like two species that kind of don't give a shit about drows and elves but love to fight yeah, Spire assumes you're going to be a drow following that whole plotline, but humans and gnolls are also around, and I think they're, you can play as them in uh, the spin-off game Heart. I think you can yeah. also play a regular elf in Heart, which is very much against the spirit of Spire. I think Heart was... Um, oh, you know, you know what one lesson that I remember you telling us about from um, uh, Spire that I wish was in Delta Green? Uh Inspire, one of the descriptive texts says that you should generally not be killing all of the elves that you encounter, because if you kill, like, the elf governor of this district, then another elf governor will just get hired to do it instead. But if you blackmail him, then you ha- you now control the district, and he's not just going to get replaced. Right. So that's one of the big themes of Spire in terms of actual gameplay, is that... People are gear. Like, when you advance, part of the way you advance is you gain new bonds with NPCs and can draw on them for resources or favors. So those might actually be friends of yours, or those might be, like, enemies you've actually blackmailed or subverted or turned to your cause somehow. So now you can just, like, 
use them to get what you want. Whereas if you just kill your bad guys, then they are probably just going to be replaced with someone who is more sadistic or more stupid and just going to make an even bigger problem. Which is interesting because it's like it's an interesting story reason for you not to do that. That the elves are just they just don't care enough to try and hold back if you are bastards to them. So they're just going to retaliate. But also it gives you like a tangible instead of putting yourself at risk, you can get this guy to do stuff for you. I think that's cool because it explicitly supports something that I've always wanted to see more out of game a game like Delta Green, which is a menu of interactions that's richer than just shoot this guy and then roll forensics to get rid of the body. Because it's explicitly a mechanical reason why you want to keep someone around and apply coercion through other avenues. Like how I keep talking about how great Unknown Armies is because it explicitly systemizes getting your way from someone through like browbeating them or otherwise applying social pressure. And one of the things is that if you explicitly mechanically systemize that, then it means the players will feel confident doing it. Whereas in a lot of games, the the thinking of the players is, all right, I made that persuade roll, but how do I know he's not going to stab me in the back as soon as my back is turned? Better just get rid of him. Or uh, it's like, you guys ever watched that movie Casino, where at the end, um, all the old mafia greaseballs are talking about, like, um, this, this like, witness, and, and, like, like the whole group has, like, agreed, yeah, this guy's not gonna, not gonna snitch on us, he's, he's been with us for, for, you know, 20 years, he's a real, a Marine, he's a real trooper, we can trust him. And then the one guy at the end of the table is like, hey, why take a chance? And then they kill him. And that's what, that's what, um, RPGs always feels like to me, where, where, um, unless you give an ironclad, like, kind of almost guarantee that your attempted social manipulation will produce a tangible result that won't immediately be negated, the players are not going to be confident in it, and they're going to resort to violence. It's kind of, this is a little bit inside the gritty, I guess, but it's interesting to me that Spire doesn't really have, like, a social combat system, just because it would be really easy to bolt on. Like, the way that their system works is... NPCs don't really have straight-up hit points. They just take stress in various ways. And that, like, physical damage can be that, but you could just as easily make it, like, persuasion or emotional damage or something. Or turn it into, like, even a stealth system where, like, their ability to hide themselves is being negated. You could do a lot with, like, the pretty simple mechanics there. 